So in constitutional law, we're still talking about executive powers, but we're talking kind of how the legislative and the executive are going to interact. And our topic today is delegation. And specifically, when can the legislature delegate some of their powers to the executive branch? Uh, the legislative branch does have authority to delegate some powers to the executive branch, but today we're going to be concerned about how extensive this authority is and really the scope of how this goes. And Gundy, our very first case, is going to be a good example of how this debate kind of works of whether or not there should be this delegation. And a big part of this is agencies. Are agencies constitutional? How influential are they? How much power should they be afforded uh, as being both this quasi-legislative and quasi-executive branch, this kind of fourth branch of government that was not at least envisioned by the founders of the Constitution. So there's a few things that we need to talk about. Uh, We're going to be talking about the non-delegation theory in agencies, and our big case underneath that is going to be Gundy. Then we're going to talk about the major questions doctrine, and then we're going to talk about the legislative veto. Uh, Very quick, very simple, and we'll just work through these three principles and then uh, go ahead and wrap this episode up. But Gundy versus the United States under the non-delegation theory, well, you can think of the non-delegation theory as being exactly what it says. It's the idea that Congress should not delegate, no delegation, non-delegation, to the executive branch, that those powers that are normally reserved for legislation making. But with the passage of the New Deal, this non-delegation theory kind of took a back seat. Uh, instead of people believing that you shouldn't delegate to the executive branch, agencies were created by the New Deal and were held to be valid by uh, the Supreme Court. And ultimately, ultimately, these agencies were given a lot of power from the legislature to actually work with things. So the way that these agencies were allowed to, you can so say, legislate, uh, was that the Congress needed to establish or delegate to these agencies with an intelligible principle. And all that is, is you're trying to define the purpose of the delegation. This intelligible principle, intelligible principle was a process where it was just really easy to pass muster. Ever since the New Deal, pretty much every agency was found to have delegated powers through an intelligible principle, and there was no agency that was really found to be unconstitutional. And a big part of this, too, was a case called Chevron, where if there was a challenge to this authority, we would have something called Chevron deference, which is to turn back to the deference of the agency and their expertise and lawmaking powers to actually know what is going to be appropriate and for how things are going to be run. But things started to change uh, slightly. Uh, Gundy is the first step of that change. Uh, Gundy was a situation um, where sex offenders had to be registered and the question was, should uh, sex offenders were, before the registration ever happened, did those sex offenders need to be registered on the new reg- registration? And that authority was given to the attorney general as an agency 
power that was given to work that principle. And ultimately, the court says yes, that this was a valid delegation. Uh, it did have an intelligible principle, and that was this is within the scope of the attorney general's power. But this is where the dissent really starts to take place is the intelligible principle is really a cop-out because ever since the New Deal, everything has been passed. Everything's made it through this, and so it really has no point. Why even have the standard at all? And so the dissent is arguing that there should be a higher standard of having additional requirements to show that this delegation is appropriate. And that standard includes actually specifying what the principle is, what the delegation uh, authorizes the agency to do. And this goes ahead and leads into the major questions doctrine. Uh, West Virginia versus EPA. EPA, I think it stands for Environmental Protection Agency. And they're in charge of a lot of the uh, climate control, uh, regulating uh, companies and how much emissions are going to be putting out. But this case ended up being a limitation on the delegation, and it's because it presented a major question. So ultimately, our big takeaway from this case is agencies are going to be limited every time when there is a major question presented. And a major question is just simply going to be big issues. We'll get more into that. But in these situations where a major question is presented, agencies are required to have express congressional approval for regulating in these situations. And in this case, Congress did not get them express approval. What is a major question? That really is the question. Major questions appear in extreme or extraordinary circumstances. It's going to be a two-part test. First, we need to ask if this is an extreme or ordinary circumstances that require the agency to work in an extraordinary way. Ultimately, this is just a question of how big of a policy question is this? If it's a very big policy question, it's going to be a major question. Uh, The second part of this analysis is does the Congress Uh, Does the agency have congressional approval to behave uh, accordingly with this major question? If the answer to the first question is yes and the answer to the second question is no, then this authority is going to be limited and delegation is not going to work. The dissent argues here that the major questions doctrine should be avoided. Uh, That's just because there's no clear standard to say what a major question is. And it's also saying that there's other techniques to invalidate some of these delegations by looking at statutory interpretation. So that's the major question. Let's talk briefly about some of the pros and cons of agencies before moving into the legislative veto. On the positive side, agencies have experts who can make adjustments to uh, to legislation that the legislature just would not know. Uh, Another potential plus side is that these agencies are supposed to be not nonpartisan. The counter-argument of that, though, is that these agencies are appointed by the president as part of the executive branch, and as a result, they are going to be partisan. There's no way to avoid that. Because of that, these appointees are going to lean and towards the person who appointed them as far as their political preferences go. And we want to avoid that, especially when this is a non-elected 
delegation, not delegation, a non-elected agency because these are appointees. So what's the current trend? Where do we currently stand with agencies, non-delegation doctrine, and the major questions doctrine? Ultimately, there's three main approaches. You can either support the agencies. Uh, This is going to go back to that Chevron deference that I mentioned. And that's the idea that Chevron is alive and you should defer to the agency whenever they make a decision. You can have a balance between uh, supporting and not supporting. And that's going to be agencies should not touch major questions. Uh, This is the idea that Chevron is dead. Instead, you're going to allow agencies to exist, but if they address major questions, then they are not allowed to have delegations. And then the third approach is that agencies are unconstitutional, and this is the idea of the non-delegation doctrine in full, where you should not delegate to agencies at all. Uh, The current trend is to restrict the use of agencies, Um, so that's going to be the second or the third option. Uh, We're slowly moving back towards the non-delegation doctrine, but right now I think we're at a place where we are utilizing the major questions doctrine. Finally, let's talk about the legislative veto. This is just another way of saying delegation with strings, which is what our professor liked to say with it. Ultimately, you can delegate it, but if the if Congress doesn't like what you're doing, they have the ability to take away the delegation. And legislative vetoes often work in a certain way where only one of the houses, sorry, one of the, um, what would be the word? Can't think of it. Either the Congress or, sorry, either the House or the Senate would be able to veto the actions of an agency. And ultimately, the uh, Supreme Court finds this argument unpersuasive. Uh, There's a part of the Constitution that says uh, that there is a requirement for bicameralism and presentment. Bicameralism is the idea that any legislation that passes needs to go to both the House and the Senate for approval. If it doesn't go into the House or the Senate, then it is going to not pass constitutional muster. Additionally, even if it is approved by both the House and the Senate, it needs to be presented to the president for approval. And again, if it uh, fails to do so, then that ultimately means that any legislation would uh, that fails to do so would be unconstitutional. And this presents the idea of INS versus Chadha, the case that we have here. This was an instance where Congress delegated power to the Attorney General uh, to stop deportations if they so chose. Uh, the string in this case, though, was that the Attorney General can be overturned by one of the houses of Congress. Uh, in other words, Congress was reserving the authority to alter the decision. Uh, in the present instance, uh, Chadha was about to be deported, and the attorney general intervened, and then Congress once again intervened, uh, saying, no, Chadha needs to be deported. And the court here says this legislative veto 
is unconstitutional. Even though originally in the statute, you said that, uh, which did pass by bicameralism and presentment, you reserved a method of legislative lawmaking that doesn't pass uh, bicameralism and uh, presentment. So ultimately, we're left with two positions here. The majority majority position is that every piece of legislation act, uh, if it defines as a piece of legislation, needs to pass both of those requirements, bicameralism and presentment. The dissent, however, argues, well, you already did it once. Why do you need to do it again? And it's also concerned that there are over 200 laws that had a legislative veto in place before this one was ever challenged. And the dissent just does not want to invalidate those laws. So you can say the majority opinion is a very textual and formalistic reading of the Constitution, while the dissent is a very functional reading of the Constitution. So that's how delegation is going to work. Let's just go ahead and sum up really quick the three things that we talked about. We talked about the non-delegation theory in agencies, uh, starting with the non-delegation moving towards having delegation more broadly allowed, and then again limited with the major questions doctrine, which was the second topic that we focused on. And the major questions doctrine is a limitation on delegation to agencies. And so there are ultimately three main approaches to having agencies. You can support the agency, you can have a balance with the major questions doctrine, or you can have an idea that agencies are completely unconstitutional, and that's the non-delegation theory. And then finally, we talked about the legislative veto, which is just delegation with strings attached. And in INS versus Chatham, we learned that legislative vetoes are going to be a no-go. And that's a big takeaway there as far as how most of this works. Anyways, have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't our pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice, and with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.